You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Before we jump into the message and jump into Luke, I do want to do one thing here a little different. And maybe begin by saying this, is as, as believers, we are called to seek justice. Micah 6.8 says, what does God require to act justly and to love mercy? In January, we have the opportunity to reflect on that, both in relation to the challenge of racial injustice and injustice towards the unborn. I'm going to comment today on racial injustice as we look forward to the remembering of Martin Luther King's birthday. I found a series of letters written uh, by contemporary pastors to Martin Luther King thanking him for his ministry. One such letter was written by Matt Chandler. Now if that letter, if that name is unfamiliar, he pastors a very large church in Dallas. He's very well known. He leads a national organization called Acts 29 and often writes for a well-used blog called the Gospel Coalition. Chandler's hunger for greater diversity in the church and from learning, all, from learning from all ethnicities is worth imitating and reflecting on. This was his letter to Martin Luther King. I was in my early 20s when I first read your letter you wrote while in jail in Birmingham. At that time, my heart had already been marked by your passion and vision for diversity. I'd already been stirred to pursue a lifelong journey in the participation of the dream you spoke about and to spend my days and my life in the influence God has given me to see that dream come true. When I read your letter, I wept, my resolve growing stronger as I came to the end. Whatever God had for me in the future, I would learn, I would learn from those different ethnicities and have as many deep and diverse friendships as possible while guarding against the ignorance birth in homogeny. As a white man born to white parents living under the privilege of the dominant culture, staying this path hasn't been easy. Whenever I've hit bumps in the road as the pastor of a large church, I find myself drawn back to your passion, vision, and sacrifice for the cause of multi-ethnic harmony and the type of diversity that brings glory to God and sanctifies men and women. Diversity that is not simply an assembly of multi-raced, but assimilated peoples can only be done through God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what my heart is hungry for. I am grateful for the course you charted in your service to Christ. I am praying that the Spirit of God would guide our steps today as we seek to better display His love for all men. And I seek to continue learning from my brothers of other ethnicities. For your passion and vision for diversity and humility, thank you, Dr. King. And I would like to echo that thank you as well. Pray with me, if you would. Father, continue to make the family of Jesus here on earth as it will be in heaven. Multi-ethnic, united, connected, honoring one another. We pray that as followers of Jesus, we might lead the way to be salt in our culture for racial harmony. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's turn our attention now to Luke's gospel. 
And I begin with a question this morning. Have any of you ever ventured, or have you ever launched a new venture, project, vocation, or relationship, and realized halfway through you had no idea what you were getting yourself into? You desperately wish somebody had clued you in into how hard this was going to be. You had not considered the cost. You did not understand the risks. You did not realize what it would take to finish what you naively began. I suspect all of us could tell a story. Something unfinished or abandoned halfway. We appreciate a fair warning. We have that now on tobacco and alcohol products and prescription drugs. Of course, the warnings for some drugs have become something of a joke. Tagged on hurriedly at the end, the warning of possible side effects, including impairment or death. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you enjoyed NFL playoff football yesterday, or despite Nick's comments, will tonight. I do know we have some serious Packer and Seahawks fans here. Shut Sports is a major supplier of football helmets for the NFL. And they have issued the following warning label on all their helmets. And you see the helmet here, and you can't read it, but see in the right-hand corner? Do you see that warning? Here's what it says. In the, the, here's the first sentence. No helmet system can prevent concussions or eliminate, eliminate the risk of serious head or neck injuries playing football. Now, the warning label continues with some information about the symptoms for concussions and then concludes by repeating the original warning. To avoid these risks, do not engage in the sport of football. You think some lawyers worked on that statement? You think they're just a trite concern about liability? No stone unturned. This dynamic of counting the cost or weighing the risk was not lost on Jesus. Following him was no halfway proposition. And so he encouraged the crowds to think carefully before committing to follow him. Jesus does the same thing today. He still calls people from the crowd to the committed. Now, after we read today's passage, we'll have a very simple outline, asking first, what are the meaning of Jesus' words? Because at first glance, they will be confusing, I promise you. And then second, how do we apply them? And we're going to apply His words into how do they help us begin well, and how do His words help us end well? Okay, why don't you stand? We're going to read from Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is page 874. <coughs> Excuse me. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, 
even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whatever he has enough to complete it, or whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it, salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He was ears to hear. Let him hear. This is God's word. You can be seated. So our first task is the meaning of Jesus' words. Now the context is important. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem where he knows his fate, rejection and crucifixion. The happy-going crowds traveling with him believe he's going to establish an empire. And they anticipate widespread applause and power for Jesus, and they want to be part of it. Jesus' words here seek to dislodge them of their earthly dream for glory. Those that follow Him must be ready for a devotion, ready to give up that which they hold dearest. What does He mean to hate their parents? This is one of the most challenging sayings of Jesus. We know from Scripture that He does not mean this literally. In another Gospel account, Jesus harshly, He actually gave a scathing rebuke to the Pharisees who had twisted the meaning of the commandment, honor your father and mother. The importance of family, the command to love family is clear all throughout Scripture. So what is going on here? One of the ways Jesus captured the attention of His listeners was that of, quote, overstating a truth in such a way that the resulting exaggeration forcefully brought home the point he was attempting to make. That's New Testament scholar Robert Stein. Stein continues by saying this, the point he is making is that even natural affection for our loved ones dare not interfere or take precedence over loyalty to him. Most times, most times, the love and loyalty for parents go hand in hand. But when a choice must be made, natural affections must be set aside out of love for Jesus. Love for Jesus must be so great that any human love will pale in comparison that it can be described as hate. Now this can happen in a concrete way. In exceptional circumstances... Loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to family can collide and create a fork in the road. When a family member breaks from family tradition or expectation to follow Jesus, 
and parents feel rejected, they may accuse the rebel family member of hating them. Do they hate them? No. At least they should not. But in breaking with the set path, it is perceived as hate by the parents. Now, before we go further, just step back a moment and reflect on this outrageous demand from Jesus. What does it indicate about his identity? Jesus is either God, who has the power and authority to call for such devotion, or he is something far worse. Right? I mean, who is it? It's, it's cult leaders that seek to drive a wedge between followers and family members. If Jesus is a mere man, he is deranged. And he is narcissistic for calling for such level of devotion to him. But if he is God the Creator, he has the power and the authority to do so. Now, other of Jesus' words here need clarification. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, he says, We must carry our cross to be his disciple. And in verse 33, we must renounce everything to be his disciples. What does this mean? One commentator explained it this way. The one who carried a cross walked down death row to their place of execution. They knew there was no turning back, and it was a total, complete commitment with your life completely yielded. You knew your life did not belong to you anymore. Coming to Jesus is not merely the acceptance of a few historical facts. It is giving another person authority to lead your life. I live, I exist not to please myself, but Him. This entails a complete reorientation of my life goals and a transformation of my identity. Another commentator pointed this out, and I, I had never thought of this. He wrote that the phrase, bear our cross, think about it, the phrase, bear our cross, has entered into our cultural dictionary. It is used by believers and unbelievers alike. To bear your cross in that context refers to a passive submission to all kinds of afflictions like disappointments, pain, sickness, and grief that can come upon men and women. But that is not the primary meaning here in the words of Jesus. This points not to something passive, but an active, intentional obedience to Jesus. It's active, it's not passive. It's intentional. And obedience to Jesus is not how critics have characterized it, famously characterized it in movies and so forth or in popular culture. Obedience to Jesus is not a faceless, meaningless compliance. It is not external righteousness to do what one is supposed to do to be a good Christian. But obedience is an exercise of a free will, of love, yielded to one 
greater than yourself. And the actions demonstrate love from a place of shared values. In 2001, John Oros spoke to students at an Indiana seminary. Actually, one of our students, or one of our members, attended that seminary about his experience as a church leader in Romania during the communist era. Again, this is 2001. He wrote this, or, or said this to the students. During communism, many of us preached, and people came at the end of his service and said, I have decided to become a Christian. We told them, it is good that you want to become a Christian. But we would like to tell you that there is a price to be paid. Why don't you reconsider what you want to do because many things can happen to you. You can lose and you can lose big. Now a high percentage of those people chose to take part in a three-month catechism class. That's a, a class for new believers. At the end of this period, many participants declared their desire to be baptized. Typically, I would respond as such. It is really nice that you want to become a Christian. But when you give your testimony, there will be informers there who will jot down your name. And tomorrow the problems will start. You can lose your job. You can lose your friends. You can lose your neighbors. You can lose your kids who are climbing the social ladder. You can even lose your life. And he concludes by saying this, Let me tell you my joy. When we looked into their eyes, and their eyes were in tears, and they told us, if I lose everything but my personal relationship with my Lord Jesus Christ, it is still worth it. This was what Christ was getting after. These men and women discovered in the fire of their reality the great paradox in this call to follow Jesus. Some of the things we give up to follow Jesus are good things, like more money and personal comfort. Other things we are called to forsake, like self-centeredness or addictions, are certainly bad for us. But the call to lose all to find your true self in the end is not negative news. It is good news. Now, in the eyes of the world, the equation may not add up. But for what we receive back in the treasure of having Jesus, for what we receive back in the treasure of having Jesus, purpose, meaning, the satisfaction of His love, the friendship of brothers and sisters, intimacy with God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace to be a new creation, the hope of all things being made new, an inheritance that will never fade. In the end, it is an entirely rational choice to trade in on the things that will not last to gain the things that we cannot lose. It's a totally rational decision and it's good news. The paradox of the gospel is good news. The very well-known, he's passed now, the very well-known British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who had a conversion in his, the middle of his life, wrote on this paradox of self-denial, saying, I can say that I, have, that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I am beholden to Jesus.
So, what have we done so far? Where have we been? We have established this morning His words, clarified His words, that we are called to give Jesus our ultimate loyalty and to carry our cross. That was what the crowds needed to hear, and in our affluent, comfort-driven culture, we still need the call to move from the crowds to the committed. So, as we were exchanging Christmas gifts on Sunday morning, I was looking for themes of the gifts, because they were all certainly mostly surprises, and I said, you know, one of the themes this time is comfort. Just wouldn't believe all the things from weighted blankets to things that rub your neck to, you know, slippers. I mean, all related around comfort. We are a comfort-loving culture. We need this message. We need this message desperately. Now, one more saying bears explanation. Look at verse 34 in relation to salt. Salt was a preservative in the ancient world. It was a flavoring then like it is today. And if you've never noticed, it is used in gargantuan quantities in many processed foods and even in so, even in so many so-called healthy restaurants. But what if salt does not fulfill its purpose? What if its essential quality is lost? It becomes useless. And that is the outcome for believers who allow other things to come and hold sway in their hearts, to steal the affections that belong to God. Jesus calls us to live like Him, and our collective witness as the church acts as a preservative to culture by fearly fearlessly resisting evil, and by promoting everything that is good. Secondly, our collective witness should bring flavor to life. Yeah, even in our cross-carrying. This is the paradox. It should bring flavor to life. Our friendships, our families, our ethics, our approach to work, the way we relate to money and things, the art that we consume and produce, our attitude towards education and learning, our pursuit of justice, the way we treat those in the so-called underclass, all of this should bring out the attractiveness of the Christian faith. The composite picture of our shared exercise should reflect beauty, excellence, and goodness. And the irony of it is, is that this flavoring salt emerges from a community of people helping each other carry their cross and follow Jesus. So what does this passage mean? The kingdom of God calls for a wholehearted commitment. And we should count the cost if we want to go from the crowd to the committed. Okay, so those are the meanings. Of Jesus' words. That's the first part of our outline. Let's now move to the second part of our outline. What difference does it make? And what I'd like to do is share how this bears on how we begin the journey and how we end the journey of following Jesus. Let's begin with how we begin the journey. And let me first relate a story told by another pastor. He said this about his childhood. 
He said, I have vivid memories as a kid of my father taking me to an auction sale. He told me, don't scratch your nose at the wrong time, son. He also said this, always remember, he also, also said, always remember this, whenever you go to an auction sale, make sure you know your upper limit price. And then this pastor commented, the great danger for us is that when we walk into the Christian life is that we have a clearly established upper limit price. But the truth is, Jesus does not allow that. For those who are married here, how many times did you come to a place where you said, I didn't know it was going to cost this. I didn't realize this was the price to pay to stay in a good, healthy marriage. For those that are parents, how many times have you been tempted to run in the middle of the night saying to yourself, I did not know it was going to cost this much. I did not know how much personal failure I was going to face or how much time this would mean. For those of you who own your own business or are self-employed, how many times have you asked yourself, is this really, really worth it? Just write a blank in that sentence and fill in any other different project, venture, or relationship. My goodness, I have asked these questions over and over again about my dog. <laughs> and now we are stuck with him. We can't get rid of him. And we can't give him away in good conscience. We would have to lie to persuade anyone to take him. When the prospective owner asks if he is trained, we would say, of course he is. He never does his business around the house or on an innocent pair of shoes or on the new couch. Does he ever bite? Oh, of course not. He will never bite your child. Of course not. He's everyone's dream dog. I could go on. Can pastors lose their jobs for lying as well? But seriously, even if we count the cost, who can really prepare for marriage? Our parenting. You know, when some young star-yard couple who's married asked me about, hey, how can we prepare for parenting? Just, just a little chuckle goes up. <laughs> a little smile. <laughs> who can prepare for these things? Who can prepare for owning a business, finishing graduate school, pressing in to use the gifts God has given you. There were sacrifices that never could be anticipated. What keeps one going? It's the commitment that we make in the beginning. It's the promise that we make in the beginning. My son was just married last weekend. Appreciate all the congratulations for that. It really was a Joyful, joyful time. It's, I'm like Tom Hanks now. I can say I have five kids when I really only have four biological. I really now have five kids. It's beautiful to add a daughter. A few weeks before we went out for breakfast, we talked about the nature, my son and I, the nature of commitment, about addressing external and internal threats that can sabotage a marriage. But do you know, in reality... 
it is meaningless to address threats if there is not a foundation of mutual commitment. Let me say it again. It is meaningless to address threats if there is not a foundation of mutual commitment. You see, once every back door is closed, then by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we look for a way to endure when conflicts hit. Rather than looking for a way out. Problems are in reality God's sacred way, sacred way to make our commitment stronger. If a door is left open in marriage or in parenting to leave, something will eventually happen that will push you through that door. So, to apply this, if you are not a Christian this morning, and you are thinking about Jesus, following Jesus, Jesus wants you to begin well by considering the cost. Closing the back door, so to speak. If you're thinking about becoming a Christ follower, here is a way of expressing a prayer that would reflect these commitments of the heart. Your prayer may go something like this, Jesus, I'm in this for the long haul. Please take me and forgive me of the wrong things I've done to you and to others and to myself. Take me as I am. I come to you as I am. And I will cooperate with whatever changes that you make in my life. You are God's Son and you deserve my love and my loyalty. And pray a prayer like that to come to Jesus. You know, it was true then and it is true now that the church is true then, it's true here, and it is true today that the church has always been an attractive place for people looking to be a part of something, to be a part of the crowd, to draw the benefits of being in a close-knit community but not yet ready to engage with Jesus as an individual, Jesus calls you to Him in that way. You know, if you are a Christian this morning already, this call to discipleship for non-Christians brings up an important point, a nuance in how we share our faith. It's important that we never give our non-Christian friends the impression that they have to clean up their lives before they come to Jesus. That is, if entering the Christian life is like entering a house, they must get all cleaned up before they can come. Wipe the shoes off, take the shoes off, get all cleaned up before they can come in. We must never leave that impression. But on the other hand, it's also equally true we must also not leave the impression that when our friend is entered, that Jesus does not want and seek their cooperation to change them, to make them more into His image. Being a disciple means that we do not resist Him, but we are constantly saying yes to Him. Okay? So, that's how we apply these words in the beginning of our journey. How do we apply these words now uh, towards the end of our journey. How do these words help veteran believers finish well and finish strong? Look at verse 30. 
this person, Jesus says, began to build, but wasn't able to finish. So many of you, like myself, you've raised your kids. Your evenings are no longer filled with frenzied activity of homework and soccer games. You've largely built your nest egg. Debts are in the rearview mirror. But you're a little more tired. There are some aches and pains. There is that pesky colonoscopy every few years. For me, every three, because they, they found polyps, and so it's every three for me. 2020 is the year. You have lots of bumps. Some things in life worked out as you hoped. Many did not. Your limitations are in full view. The future has narrowed. Failures, regrets sometimes haunt you. How do you find the motivation to not coast or crawl to the finish line? How do you find the motivation to run through the tape all the way? This is a question that I struggle with, and I'm sure many of you do as well. To answer it this morning, I'd like you and me to consider the meaning of forsaking it all. Is forsaking it all a once-and-done activity? Something strictly and only done in relation to worldly goods? What does it really mean to forsake everything? Does a Trappist monk who has Abandon all modern conveniences to live in a monastery? Taken a vow of silence and poverty? Has he forsaken all? Is the missionary who sells everything to live in the Amazon jungles, has she forsaken all? Now, by the way, these are noble, these are noble things. And we should honor those who have experienced self-renunciation in that way. Our own Abby Hubacher is serving at this moment in Australia. One of the founding couples of our church, Mike and Sue Cater, in their 70s, are living in Nepal. And yet these often, the missionary or the monk or the nun, these are our prevailing images of self-renunciation, and we may be tempted to think that this is the limit, or this is really what it means to forsake all. No one else really ever applies it. But let's reflect for just a moment on this to think about this. Can a man become a Trappist monk, be given to religious activity all day, and actually hold on to his life seeking to save it for himself? Can a woman go about mission work amongst primitive tribes completely cut off from the world and worldly goods, and yet not carry your cross? I think you know the answer to that question. If you have thought about the meaning to genuine spirituality, you know that the answer to these questions are yes. That is indeed a possibility. And so it proves, or at least it shows us, that forsaking all is not only in relation to our worldly goods, or where we live, but it first relates to our heart and our attitude, and then from there informs us how we relate to things and money and where we live and the goals that we pursue. 
True spirituality is vigilant, therefore, at every stage in life, whether you live in suburbia, or you are an urban dweller, or you live on the other side of the world. Spirituality as believers continues from day one to the very end of rooting out and repenting of the idols that seek the supremacy of our hearts. We never retire from that. This is part of what Jesus is saying. We might retire from our jobs, but we never retire from loving Jesus supremely and loving others. You know, as we get older, I've recognized this pattern. There's this constant dynamic of like a push and pull. We gain, we gain like what we never had, but then we're called to let go and to give away. We gain wealth we never had. We're called to give more away. We gain notoriety that we never had. We are called to use it for others. We gain time we never had. We are called to give it away for others and not whittle it away in self-gratification and petty pursuits. We gain stature that we never had. Yet we are called to choices that does not exploit it. We gain meaningful family traditions, yet they must be held on to loosely through change. Our children achieve success relationally or vocationally. We are called not to derive our security from them or idolize them. We gain, we lose. We gain, we give away. We gain things we never had when we were young. We are still called to keep Christ first. The temptations are different because we have more to lose. But keeping an open hand before Him is critical if we are to finish strong, to continue to forsake all. There are some really notable and great examples in our church of individuals like this who are finishing well. Veteran believers that are really running to go through that final place. and They're not necessarily close to being there. I'm not indicating that. But they're in the stage of life that I am in and moving towards and they're still, they're running the race with perseverance. I, Jim and Bo Nicholson, examples of this. Stu and Linda Bice are examples of this. Bob and Angie Vaultman are examples of this. Kathy Jimenez, example of this, and there are many, many others. They have kept their eye on the prize. They are pressing to know Jesus better. They continue to love and to serve. They have, most have retired from their jobs, but they have not retired from loving and serving Jesus. And I want to urge you, olders, to follow their example. I urge you to follow their example. To wrap it all up this morning, whether you are just about to begin and embark on your journey with Jesus, or whether you're hitting third base, it's like nine o'clock on a, on a proverbial clock, so to speak, and keeps, keeps moving up. 
there's a constant call from Jesus, the call from Jesus to make Him our sole treasure, to realize that compared to His beauty, anything we gain in this world is like rubbish. That call in our life is there from beginning to the middle to the very end. Finally, let me say, to make this all concrete and to try to just make this in a real practical, to make this so concrete for you, because forsaking it all can be some ways nebulous. Here's what I want to say. As we begin this new year, what I'd like to encourage you to do is to ask you a question is, do you have a rule of life? Do you have a pattern of life? A rule of life? Do you have a fixed set of habits and spiritual practices that you are committed to that the rest of your life revolves around? But the habits and the spiritual practices are a fixed part of who you are and you don't perform them legalistically. You perform them and you do them out of wanting to experience the grace and power of God in your life. They're not the end. They are the means to the end. Do you have a fixed pattern, a rule of life that gives direction to and guides and governs your day-to-day existence? A pattern of spiritual and relational habits. You know, good habits function like an axis. Like the earth revolves on its axis, many people and many responsibilities can move together in rhythm on an axis when it is circling in the right direction and at the right speed. For example, hearing God's Word preached, proclaimed, and spoken is one of those habits that accelerates the axis in the right direction and helps it to go at the right speed. Commitments like daily reading of Scripture and daily prayer and weekly church and small group participation and dinner with your family with the TV off, a date night with your spouse, daily communication, daily connection with your kids, tithing, finding a place to serve others regularly. These are the ordinary habits that begin to take form in the call to forsake others. It's establishing a rule and a pattern of life that guides your daily existence. The call to move from the crowd to the committed begins in the heart. It certainly begins in the heart. But then it moves into a rule of life that affects your daily existence. This morning, my urging to you is, I believe there are a number of you, a number of you. Some of you are not yet Christians. Others of you are Christians, but Really, if we were to look at your life, we'd have to say you're more in the crowd than you are in the committed. And so I want to challenge you today, if you're in that place, I want to challenge you 
to move to that place of where the committed are away from the crowd. Let's pray.